What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Law enforcement in this country kills approximately 1,200 people every single year. And yet the names of many are never said or known except for to their families and friends. What's more, law enforcement agencies and other state actors harm our community in a myriad of ways that also go unnoticed, like profiling, sexually assaulting, and wrongfully incarcerating our people. If we don't know what's happening, then we can't fight back. We can't adequately organize a response. So every week on Law and Disorder, we are going to do a roundup of news related to state violence. We hope this segment will serve to expose, agitate, and build. This is the State Terror Roundup for the week of October 10th, 2022. This has been a hard and sad time for the movement against state terror. On Tuesday, the community gathered to celebrate the life and legacy of Tony Coleman, a longtime police accountability activist who was a central figure in the fight for justice for Oscar Grant. I have fond memories of standing on the corner with Tony with a milk crate and a bullhorn in front of thousands of people, many of whom I'm sure could not hear us. We marched together, strategized together, and were assaulted by OPD together. He then went on to found Bikes for Life in the Revolution Cafe in West Oakland, where he nurtured both young people and the movement. He was a warrior like no other, and we commit to carrying on the work in his name. Also, on Thursday, October 6th, John Crew, the longtime police accountability advocate, gave an impassioned speech at an event for DA candidate John Hamasaki. A neighbor found him a few hours later, Friday morning, slumped over the steering wheel of his car, dead of what was probably a heart attack. He was just 65. I can't even begin to say what a tragedy this is. John was, as the SF standard writes in an excellent obituary, indispensable. He was a tireless and brilliant advocate for reform. He knew more about the workings of SFPD and police policy than most people alive. He was never, ever afraid to speak up in the face of injustice. He was a dream source for journalists, always available, always accessible, always reliable, and always quotable. He was also a great guy. Source, Tim Redman, 48 Hills. I personally could not agree more. I had the honor of working with and strategizing with John as well and turning to him as an expert on all of the things. He was a soldier for the people and will be missed dearly. A black teenager in Mississippi has died days after police shot him in the head outside a discount store and his relatives are questioning the officer's actions. Police shot Jahi McMillan, 15, on Thursday in the parking lot of a family dollar store in Gulfport, Mississippi. McMillan was a freshman at Gulfport High School and is survived by his mother, other relatives, most of whom are outraged and sitting in their trauma. Gulfport police said in a press release that the shooting occurred Thursday afternoon after they responded to a 911 call in the area in reference to several minors waving guns at other motorists. Gulfport police pulled the minors over in the parking lot of a family dollar where a Gulfport police officer engaged what they say was an armed suspect that they've since identified at McMillan, resulting in shots being fired. The family doesn't believe any of that and is demanding answers. Source, Margaret Baker, The Sun-Herald. More than a dozen unhoused residents this weekend moved to a vacant lot in West Oakland following recent evictions from the Wood Street encampment, which was, until recently, the city's largest. The residents are hoping the city of Oakland will lease the lot at 34th Street and Mandela Parkway from Caltrans to relieve overcrowding on city streets, where residents have moved following the evictions. I spent yesterday morning at 34th and Mandela, where those folks had been pushed to, and watched 
in horror as Caltrans and the California Highway Patrol not just evicted them from the second place that they have moved, but arrested them. Councilmember Carol Fife, Community Ready Corps, founder Terha Ock, and many of us were there demanding that they be allowed to stay. What's more, Councilmember Fife was trying to get city manager Ed Ryskin to sign a piece of paper that would allow them to move just one block over to a property that is currently managed by Operation Dignity. Operation Dignity was more than willing and ready to come and allow those residents to move there. Reskin refused to sign the paperwork, resulting in the arrest of unhoused men, women, including an elderly veteran. What is happening in the city of Oakland is disgusting, and it's going to take all of us to stand up for our unhoused relatives. The Oakland City Council last week directed staff to pursue the option of using eight acres at the former Oakland Army base to house up to 300 people, including many of those displaced from the Wood Street encampment. Ed Reskin is expected to report back to City Council by October 18th, a meeting that people are asking uh, folks to mobilize to, on how to clear regulatory hurdles that would enable the city to allow people to live there. Given his behavior today, I highly, highly doubt that's what Ed Reskin is going to do. Source, Aaron Baldessari, KQED. Y'all, earlier this year, a federal judge announced that the Oakland Police Department was finally on a path to completing a mandated reform program that began nearly 20 years ago, a process, by the by, that was supposed to only take five years, following the Ryder scandal, a case in which West Oakland cops beat and planted drugs on people. It appeared that the department could be released from federal oversight, despite folks like me sounding the alarm bell that they were nowhere near ready. Still, it appeared that the department could be released from federal oversight sometime in early 2023 if they could keep up the quote-unquote good work. But newly unearthed problems lurking in the department could set back this timeline. In his most recent report, OPD's federal monitor Robert Warsaw revealed that two disciplinary matters came to his attention in May that called into question the department's ability to thoroughly and fairly investigate police conduct cases. Surprise, surprise, surprise. While Warsaw did not disclose details about the two cases, he did write that the matters had been referred to an outside law firm to conduct a full investigation. Warsaw also said that OPD is no longer in compliance with Task 5 of the negotiated settlement agreement. Boy, that lasted a whole second and a half. The department's reform roadmap. Task 5 requires OPD to thoroughly investigate misconduct complaints against officers. Warshaw's finding is a setback for the department. It's really not a setback for the department. It's a continued setback for the people. We're the ones living under the boot of OPD's terror. I digress. Warshaw's finding is a setback for the people. They say the department. Again, which has been under federal court oversight since 2003 costing millions of dollars in lawsuits by people who were beaten, raped, profiled, harassed, and harmed by the Oakland Police Department. Many, many lives, right? In 2015 alone, the Oakland Police Department murdered 11 black men. The scandals go on and on. When will we finally say enough is enough? Source of the story, not my commentary, of course, is Darwin Bond Graham from Oakland side. A data broker has been selling raw location data about individual people to federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has learned. This personal data isn't gathered from cell phone towers or tech giants like Google. It's obtained by the broker via thousands of different apps on Android and iOS app stores as part of the larger location data marketplace. The company, Fog Data Science, has claimed marketing materials that it has billions of data points, about over 250 million devices, and that its data can be used to learn about where its subjects work, live, 
and associate source the electronic frontier foundation the police shooting of an unarmed 17 year old eating in his car at a mcdonald's parking lot last week was quote not justified end quote and authorities expect to file criminal charges against the officer by the end of the week san antonio police chief william mcmanus said last tuesday the video was horrific the chief told CNN's Brianna Keller. There is no question in anybody's mind looking at that video that the shooting is not justified. The chief said he recognized an issue immediately upon arriving to the scene of the October 2nd shooting based on the location of the bullet holes. Chief says that there is a policy that prohibits officers from shooting at vehicles, moving vehicles, except if their life is in immediate danger or the life of someone else. That's also the case here in Alameda County. When I saw it, the location of the bullet holes, I had an issue with it right away. You can tell by looking at the vehicles, which way the vehicle is moving, where the shots are fired. And this vehicle, it was very telling to me that this vehicle was moving away from the officer. The chief said he expects the officer to be charged with two counts of aggravated assault by the end of the week. Charges that could rise to homicide if the 17-year-old does not survive. Source, CNN. The United States Supreme Court is hearing a case this term that will impact whether the state of Texas executes Rodney Reed for a capital murder. But the case is not about Reed's innocence. It's about whether or not he filed his legal claims in time. In 1997, the then 30-year-old Reed was charged with killing 19-year-old Stacey Stitz after her body was discovered in bushes in Bastrop, Texas. Reed, who is a black man, has always maintained his innocence but was convicted in 1998 by an all-white jury and later sentenced to death. Medical examiners stated that Stitz had been sexually assaulted prior to her death and found a small amount of semen that linked Reed to the woman. Stitz, who was engaged to another man, and Reed had secretly been dating. And his defense argued that the presence of DNA was due to consensual sex. In the years since, Stitz's then-fiancé appears to have confessed to the crime. She was engaged at the time to local police officer Jimmy Fennell, who was later incarcerated for kidnapping and allegedly raping a woman while on duty as a police officer in 2007. And get this, while in prison, a member of the Aryan Brotherhood stated in a sworn affidavit that Fennell said he'd murdered Stitz for her affair with Reed. Quote, I had to kill my in-loving fiancé, end quote. In 2014, Reed requested DNA testing of crime scene evidence. The court denied his request. Later that year, the state court denied his request for rehearing. In 2019, Reed filed a claim in federal court asserting that the state's laws, procedures for DNA testing are unconstitutionally inadequate. These dates are important because the question presented to the Supreme Court now in Reed's case is not about DNA testing or innocence, but about timing. The law at the center of this case, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, lets defendants seek redress in federal court when their rights have been deprived by a state or local government official. When Texas state courts denied Reed his request for DNA testing, Reed filed a claim in federal court on the grounds that his right to due process was violated. But both the federal U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas and the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals held that Reed waited too long to file his claim. The Supreme Court will now settle the question, which should give none of us any hope at all for Reed, given who currently sits on that bench. Source, Molly Green, The Appeal. This has been the State Terror Roundup for the week of October 10th, 2022. State Terror Roundup soundtrack provided by Coffee Brown, an Oakland musician, singer, and songwriter who has been a force in the Bay Area hip-hop and soul scene since the early 1990s. You can check her out at kofybrown.com and her website and socials are linked from our site at kpfa.org. 
A shout out to this show's producer and sometimes co-host Jesse Strauss, as well as the Anti-Police Terror Project, who both helped curate the content for this segment. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>